Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Today there exist numerous rivalries between various nations of Europe. For example, between the English and French, the Serbs and Croats, or the Dutch and the Germans. Fortunately, most are now less hostile than in earlier times, and played out on the football field instead of on real battlefields. No rivalries today are as embittered as that between Greece and Turkey, whose relationship can only be understood by getting to know their histories. It all began about a millennium ago, and it is their first major confrontation that I will talk about today. Welcome to A History of Europe, Key Battles, the Battle of Manzikert, between the Greeks-Byzantines and the Turks. In a previous podcast, I told the story of the centuries of conflict between the first Bulgarian kingdom and the Byzantine Empire, which culminated in 1014 in the Battle of the Clydon Pass. Victory was achieved by Basil II, who for his military successes became known as Basil the Bulgar Slayer. He left the empire in the strongest position it had been for centuries, but it took his successors a surprisingly short time to squander his legacy. In the half-century after the death of Basil II, the Byzantine Empire suffered significant decline under a series of exceptionally poor leaders. One of our best sources for this period is a work by a Byzantine monk by the name of Michael Sellus. Born in around 1017, Sellus's best-known work is the Chronographia. This work covers the reigns of 14 emperors and empresses from Basil II's death in 1025 to 1078 and contains a good deal of biographical detail about the imperial rulers. Sadus was active in the government for some of his time, so reads also as a book of political memoirs. It is one of the most accessible of all contemporary Byzantine accounts, which I would highly recommend to anyone interested in Byzantium. However, his personal judgment of the rulers, especially around the time of the Battle of Manzikert, are largely discredited by modern historians. Two other important contemporary sources provide very different views of the events. Firstly, there is a continuation of the work of John Skalitzis, known as Scalitzi's Continuatus, covering 1057 to 1079, which some historians believe was also written by Scalitzi's. We also have a written account from Michael Ataliates, one of the fellow soldiers of Romanos IV, 
the emperor who fought at the Battle of Manzikert. On Basil's death at the age of 67, the empire looked poised to continue regaining previously lost territories. The troops were confident and the imperial treasury in a very healthy state. Basil's greatest mistake, though, was to fail to make plans for who would succeed him. Worried by the prospect of associating another man with the imperial house, Basil II prevented his nieces from marrying any of the Byzantine nobility until the very end of his life. When Basil died childless, sole leadership was assumed by his younger brother, Constantine VIII. Constantine had officially been co-emperor during Basil's reign, but kept out of the way for serious state matters, and spent his life in the search of pleasure and entertainment. The arrangement had worked fine while Basil was still alive. Left to rule alone, though, Constantine did nothing much worthy of mention until he died three years later, in November 1028. He was succeeded by his daughter Zoe, and Zoe's first husband, Romanos III. For the next 32 years, Zoe shared the imperial title with a series of co-rulers, three husbands in turn, and at one time her sister Theodora. This period involved the type of devious backroom dealing and suspicious untimely deaths which gave the word Byzantine such a bad name. Today, an overly complicated tax system is referred to as Byzantine, as can any devious political manoeuvrings. And Celus is not one to mince his words when he describes them. The emperors of this time, he writes, quote, exhausted the imperial treasury on personal whims. The public revenues were expended not on the organisation of the army, but on favours to civilians and on magnificent shows. End quote. Zoe was easily influenced and indecisive. She was also vain, showing more interest in her looks and her own comfort than in the administration of her empire. Ordinarily, such weak rulers would probably have been deposed, but it appears that the esteem Zoe and Theodora held through their relation to their uncle Basil prevented any rebellion. One exception was a revolt in 1042 by a general in Italy called George Maniarches. This remarkable giant of a man had managed to reconquer Sicily from the Arabs. Here he was assisted by Harold Hadrada, who, as I described in the previous podcast on the Battle of Hastings, later led an unsuccessful invasion of Britain in early 1066. In 1043, Maniarches led his army against troops loyal to Zoe and her third husband, Constantine IX, one of the worst of all emperors during this period, though up against some pretty stiff competition. Perhaps Maniarches would have been able to provide the type of leadership that the empire so badly needed, but instead he received a mortal wound in a melee on his way to the capital, and his revolt was put down. By the 1040s, the empire was in urgent need of a strong leader from somewhere, because it faced the growing threat of two new hostile neighbours, one from the west and one from the east, respectively the Normans and the Celtic Turks. 
the Normans were skilled and ambitious warriors on the lookout throughout Europe for plunder or land to conquer. Perhaps the most capable of all was Robert Guiscard, who in 1053 to 1054 took advantage of the vacuum of power in Italy left by George Maniarches and seized swathes of Byzantine territory for himself. The other main threat to Constantinople, the Celtic Turks, arrived from Central Asia. They first appear as a distinctive tribe in the latter half of the 10th century in a region called Transoxania, southeast of the Aral Sea, where they adopted the prevailing faith of Islam. At this time, they were still entirely nomadic and leading a life of brigandage. In their fights with local tribes, the most effective weapon was the bow and arrow, which they employed riding on horseback. In the 1040s, they spread across Persia, mixing with the local population and fast establishing themselves as an important regional power. Then in 1055, they forced their way into Baghdad, the capital of the mighty Abbasid Caliphate. The Turkish leader, Tugrul, arranged a marriage between his daughter and the Caliph of Baghdad, and took control of all military and administrative affairs, while the Caliph was left as figurehead of the Sunni Muslims. In this way, the Celtics revitalised Eastern Islam. As Orthodox Sunnis, blazing with the fervour of recent converts, their main enemy was the rival Shiite Fatimid Caliphate, which was based in Cairo, and spread across Palestine and Syria as far as Aleppo. Since Byzantium was an ally of Cairo, Tugur's successor, Alp Arslan, encouraged Turkish tribes to attack and harass the Byzantine frontier to distract them and dissuade them from helping the Fatimids. What they found was an empire in a hopeless state of disarray, having lacked effective leadership for three decades. Constantine IX outlived his wife, the Empress Zoe, and became sole emperor from 1054 to 1050. After his death, the last surviving member of Basil II's dynasty, his niece Theodora, took over and tried to put some order back into the empire's administration, but lived only another one and a half years. Her two successors both had very brief rules. The latter, Isaac I, Comnenus, worked diligently to try to reform the state, but became ill, probably mentally worn down by the scale of the work to be done. After Isaac retired to a monastery, it all too soon became clear that his brief reign was only a momentary pause in the imperial decline. His successor, the disastrous Constantine X Ducas, emperor from 1059 to 1067, wasted the imperial treasury on his favourite officials at court. To pay for this, he severely cut back support for the armed forces and so fatally weakened the Byzantine defences. He disbanded the Armenian local militia of 50,000 men at a crucial point of time, coinciding with the westward advance of the Celtic Turks. Alpaslan was 33 when he took over the leadership of the Celtics in 1063. 
the chroniclers tell us little about his appearance, except that he had an exceedingly long moustache. All that we know for sure was that he was a superb commander. In 1064, he led a huge expedition against Armenia and besieged its capital, Ani. The Arab historian Sibit ibn al-Ghazi quotes an eyewitness of the events. Quote, the army entered the city, massacred its inhabitants, pillaged and burned it, leaving it in ruins and taking prisoner all those who remained alive. End quote. The city constituted the only serious interruption to the Celtics' progress. From there, they were able to advance deep into the centre of Anatolia. Meeting surprisingly little resistance, they reached as far as Cappadocian Caesarea, an important city in the centre of Anatolia, which was subjected to a merciless sack. Constantine X, already old and unhealthy when he came to power, died on May the 22nd, 1067. His final act was to demand that only his sons succeed him, forcing his wife, Eudokia, to take a vow not to remarry. But by this time, the fate of Caesarea was known, and alarm was widespread throughout Constantinople. The Byzantines, even the civilian bureaucrats, realised they urgently needed a strong military leader who could face up to their numerous foes, especially the Turks. The only man who seemed capable of achieving this feat was a general by the name of Romanos Diogenes. Eudokia persuaded the Patriarch of Constantinople to annul her oath and allow her to marry Romanos for the good of the state. So on January the 1st, 1068, Romanos married the Empress and was crowned Emperor. The Emperor Romanos IV came from an old and distinguished military family with vast estates in Cappadocia, a region in central Anatolia. Still only in his early middle age, he had already served as governor of Serdica, modern-day Sofia, from where he had won several victories over the Pechenegh invaders from the northeast. According to the contemporary writer Michael Ataliates, who served with him in the field, Romanus was exceptionally good-looking, with broad soldiers and bright flashing eyes. The primary reason for the marriage was one of policy, to raise a soldier to the throne and thus to save the empire. There was, however, a strong court faction opposed to Romanus, led by the three sons of Eudokia, who had ambitions themselves for the throne the emperor felt the need to immediately establish his authority by placing himself at the head of the army against the Turks. Unfortunately for Romanos, the Byzantine forces had suffered years of neglect from his predecessors. His forces, mostly composed of Slavic, Armenian, Bulgarian and Frankish mercenaries, were ill-fed, ill-equipped, demoralised and frequently on the point of mutiny. Any attempts at reform were hampered by unhelpful courtiers in Constantinople with their own agendas. Hold up. 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Receiving word that the Celtic army had made an incursion into northern Asia Minor, Romanos raced to confront them and forced them to abandon their plunder and release their prisoners. He followed this up by capturing the town of Hierapolis, so appreciably strengthening the Byzantine position in Syria. It is a remarkable tribute to his leadership that he achieved the success he did, given the poor resources he had available. According to John Julius Norwich, quote, The emperor's personal courage, his determination not to be defeated by conditions and circumstances that would have driven most generals to despair, shines out like a beacon in the darkness, end quote. The next year, 1069, Romanos led further military expeditions in the east. After putting down rebellion by Norman mercenaries, the emperor again confronted a force of Turks raiding central Anatolia. No decisive confrontation occurred, but some progress was made towards re-establishing Byzantine authority in the Armenian frontier zone. Romanos was handicapped by having to concern himself that every time he left Constantinople, his enemies might attempt a coup. The emperor, however, made good use of his time in the capital by devoting his energies to improving the army, hiring new recruits, starting up training programmes and settling arrears of pay. In his place he sent his generals to lead the armies against the Turks in early 1070 until a truce was agreed with Alp Aslan. Despite the truce, Turkmen horsemen continued to raid Byzantine territory, so in early 1071 Romanos set out east once again on the fateful campaign that would end at Manzikert. After the weakening of the imperial professional army by his predecessors, Romanus had to rely on a large number of mercenaries. The around 10,000 Byzantine troops were bolstered with the contingents of Normans, Turks, Bulgarians, Georgians and Armenians, and some of the Varingian Guard, to total somewhere between 40,000 to 70,000 men. Alp Aslan, at the time, was heading a campaign directed not at Byzantium, but at Fatimid Cairo. Unable to control the Turkoman raiders and disclaiming all responsibility for their actions, he believed the truce with Romanos was still in force. His army had captured the Armenian fortresses of Manzikert and Arkesh, and had marched southwest to besiege Aleppo. On hearing the news of the massive Byzantine army, Alp Aslan realised he had no choice 
but to abandon his Fatimid expedition and return back to his homeland. By June, the Byzantine army had reached Theodosiopolis, modern-day Erzurum, in the northeast of Turkey. There, a debate took place with some generals, arguing that they should remain and fortify their position. Instead, Romanos decided to march southeast into Celtic territory and try and make a surprise attack against Arslan. The region had become the traditional invasion route into the empire and so had to be taken to properly secure the eastern border. The emperor sent approximately half his army under the command of Joseph Tarkaniotes to attack the strongly defended Celtic-held fortress of Kilat, a few miles from the northern shore of Lake Van. It is unknown what happened to the army sent off with Tarkaniotes. Historians are sceptical of Islamic sources claiming the army was defeated by Alp Aslan. It's not unlikely, given the court intrigues of the time, that Tarkaniotes simply abandoned his emperor. What is known is that the general survived and lived another three years. In the meantime, the half of the army with Romanos marched to Manzikar and easily captured the fortress on August the 23rd. The very next day, a foraging Byzantine party was set upon by mounted Celtic bowmen and suffered heavy casualties. The emperor, assuming he had to deal with nothing more than a small band of marauders, sent out a small detachment of troops. When it became clear that the Celtic force was much larger than he thought, he sent more men, but they too were forced to retreat with further casualties. That night the Celtics allowed the Byzantines little sleep, sending in hail after hail of arrows. The next morning it was discovered that a large contingent of Turkish mercenaries had defected to the Celtics. There were several other Turkic units in the army, any or all of which might follow their example. Arslan offered peace terms, but Romanos rejected them. He wanted to settle the eastern question and the persistent Turkic incursions with a decisive military victory. Also, he understood that raising another army later would be both difficult and expensive. With hindsight, it would have been better to have accepted the offer, and it should have been possible for some agreement to be reached. The one serious political disagreement, the status of Armenia, could surely have been settled by some mutually acceptable division of territories. Instead, the next day, the two sides met at the Battle of Manzikert. It is unfortunately not known for sure either the exact date or place of the battle. The most widely accepted date is August the 26th, 1071. As for the location, it is thought to have taken place within a mile or two of the fortress of Manzikert, towards the site of the small, modern Turkish town of Maladzgert. The Byzantines assembled in their traditional battle formation, with heavy infantry in the centre, cavalry formations on both wings, and archers protecting the infantry. 
behind was a substantial rearguard composed of the private armies of the Byzantine nobility, under the command of Andronicus Ducas, nephew of the previous emperor, Constantine X. All through the afternoon the imperial army marched across the steppe. The Celtics, instead of engaging the enemy, steadily withdrew in a wide crescent, their archers galloping back and forth and showering arrows upon the Byzantine flanks. The infuriated cavalry broke line to pursue the Turks, but ended up being caught in carefully prepared ambushes. As dusk fell, Romanus realised that a breakthrough might not happen that day, and the half of his army under Tarkanuotis were not about to appear. So he gave the order for his army to retreat back to camp. This was the moment for which Alpaslan had been waiting. Watching from the nearby hills, he gave the order to attack. Gaps quickly opened up among the Byzantine lines, who began to panic. At this point, the rear guard would be expected to move forward and engage the enemy, but instead Andronicus Ducas deliberately spread the word among his troops that the empire was dead and the battle lost. Only the troops on the Byzantine left flank, seeing their emperor in difficulties, attempted to help him. But the Celtics attacked them swiftly from the rear, and they too had to flee. Romanus in the centre fought as best he could, calling in vain for his troops to rally, but the chaos and confusion were too great. As Ateliates describes it, quote, Outside the camp all were in flight, shouting incoherently and riding about in disorder. No one could say what was happening. Some maintained that the emperor was still fighting with what was left of the army, and that the barbarians had been put to flight. Others claimed that he had been killed or captured. Everyone had something different to report. It was like an earthquake, the shouting, the sweat, the swift rushes of fear, the clouds of dust, and not least the hordes of Turks rising all around us. Depending on his speed, resolution and strength, each man sought safety in flight. The enemy followed in pursuit, killing some, capturing others, and trampling yet others under their horses' hooves. It was a tragic sight, beyond any mourning or lamenting. End quote. As the army lost discipline, the remnants of the Byzantine centre, including the emperor, were encircled by the Celtics. Romanus fought bravely but was injured and taken prisoner. When the emperor was conducted into the presence of Alp Aslan, the sultan at first refused to believe that the bloodied and tattered man covered in dirt was the mighty emperor of the Romans. After discovering his identity, Arslan placed his boot on the emperor's neck and forced him to kiss the ground. It was humiliating for the emperor, but just a gesture. Afterwards, Arslan treated Romanos with considerable dignity and re-offered the same terms of peace that he had proposed prior to the battle. The demands to surrender Antioch, Edessa, Hieropolis and Manzikert were not exceptionally harsh, as they still left the vital core of Anatolia untouched. The Sultan also proposed a marriage alliance between his son and Romanus's daughter, and also gave Romanus many presents for his route back to Constantinople. 
The Byzantine defeat at Manzikert was not disastrous just by itself. Most of the imperial army had survived, and the terms offered by the Turks were not ungenerous. The intention of Arslan, even after Manzikert, was still to focus his aggression against the Fatimid Caliphate. He probably underestimated the level of disarray among the Byzantine leadership and the extent to which this could be exploited. Conflicting news arrived in Constantinople with reports that the emperor had been killed. The rival Ducas family took the opportunity to take control of the capital and when Romanus tried to return they defeated him in battle. Romanus reluctantly agreed to resign the purple and retire to a monastery, and this agreement was ratified at Constantinople. However, John Ducas reneged on the agreement and sent men to have Romanos blinded on June 29, 1072, before sending him into exile. Without medical assistance, his wounds became infected, causing a slow, painful death. The critics of Romanos IV, Diogenes, highlight his overconfidence and excessive haste in attacking the Turks. With hindsight, he should have negotiated a truce and given himself more time to rebuild the army before committing to major offensives. Perhaps he felt rushed into acquiring some decisive victory to help assert his authority in Constantinople. Ultimately, though, he failed to build a sufficiently strong power base paid a terrible price, as did the empire. Civil war continued for several years, and this is what really proved to be disastrous for the Byzantines, an excellent unexpected opportunity for the Turks. The rivals in the Byzantine civil war compounded the problem by actively inviting in Turkish mercenaries to garrison cities for them, with the idea that they would help their side. The Turks instead simply seized the cities and kept them for themselves. Once established in Central Asia Minor, they found terrains similar to their homeland in Central Asia, ideal for stock raising and their style of pastoral economy. They settled the region, which they called the Sultanate of Rum, in recognition of its former history as part of the Roman Empire. For centuries after the fall of Rome, while Western Europe was plunged into the Dark Ages, Constantinople had been one of the largest, richest, most powerful and cultured cities the world had ever seen. But once this Anatolian heartland had been ripped from its grasp by the Turks in the late 11th and the 12th century, Byzantium was reduced to a regional power, left forever to look back to a more glorious past. John Julius Norwich describes the defeat at Manzikert as the empire's death blow, although centuries would remain until its eventual fall. The empire's loss of Asia Minor had extra significance for the history of Europe because it triggered the decision of Constantinople to seek military assistance from the West to recover its lost lands. They expected a few hundred knights. What they got was the Crusades, the subject of the next few podcasts. The website for this podcast 
is www.historyeurope.net. I've just fixed a technical problem with the quiz that I put on the Battle of Marathon. So that should be working okay now. Please take a look. You can leave comments on the podcast at the website or you can email me directly at carl, that's C-A-R-L, at historyeurope.net. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please give it a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to A History of Europe, Key Battles. Please join me next time for the Siege of Jerusalem in 1099. Until then.